Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles, the podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, interpret, and pray with sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I'm your host, Chase Krauss. Let's dive in. What's crack-a-lackin', y'all? Welcome to this week's episode of Catholics with Bibles. Once again, my name is Chase Krauss. Thank you for joining me. For those who are just tuning in for the first time, what's up? Um, for those that are watching on YouTube and you're like, wow, Chase, you are dressed very chill today. Uh, and there's a reason for that, other than the fact that I really just like wearing comfortable clothes. Uh, it's because my we have a sick toddler at home. Yep, Lena's a little bit uh, under the weather. Uh, nothing crazy, but it's, it's like not COVID or anything. Uh, it's just a cold. We're, I think we're officially in the phase now where hopefully you hear a toddler sick and you don't just assume COVID. If you do, well, that's fine, I guess, but let's move out of that mindset. I think we're past that now, aren't we? Are we, are we past that yet? Um, I am, at least. Uh, COVID went through our house in like December, early January, and we're good. Um, Lena actually had it. She had a low-grade fever, but she's fine. But now, it's just a cold. It's just one of those things where she had a slight fever and a really runny nose, and she wants to cuddle and watch Frozen over and over and over again. She's turning two this Saturday, which is kind of crazy. So if you know her, slash, even if you don't, you should send up a prayer for her this Saturday on May 8th because she's turning two. Um, and uh, But yeah, she's officially at an age where she wants to watch Frozen all the time. And that's my fault. I'll admit it's my fault. You know, before Eli was born, we had very, very little, if any, screen time with Lena. Like, she maybe watched, like, Brother Francis or, you know, some kind of EWTN or Form.org, like, kids show every once in a while when, like, me and my wife, like, maybe really needed a break. But, like, very little, very little screen time. But once Eli was born in December and then COVID went through our house and then things got crazy, well, you know... TV got introduced a little bit more, and uh, Frozen got brought into the scene by good old dad here, and uh, yep, now we're there. Now we're just living that, that Frozen life, um, but anyway, for those of you just tuning in for the first time, uh, you're like, why are we talking about kids and Disney and stuff like that? Well, I don't know. Just figure it bring it up, but also how the show usually goes down is uh, we usually always start with the Greek word of the day that has to do with our text in some way, shape, or form, or sometimes Hebrew. I'm spicing things up a little bit. Um, and we are also in a little over halfway through our Theology of the Body mini-series. And uh, we're studying various parts of Scripture and Theology of the Body and all of these things. Um, and uh, if you're asking, how is Catholics with Bibles, how does that have to do with Theology of the Body? What does that have to do with Theology of the Body? Uh, well, it's because literally all Theology of the Body is, is Pope St. John Paul II reading scripture through this hermeneutic of gift or through this lens of gift. And so you actually read the text of man when he created them. Literally, he's just doing biblical interpretation. And it's awesome. Um, and, and it just happens to apply to the body a lot of the time. Um, and so last week we talked about eunuchs a lot, which I think lays the foundation for us to basically talk about whatever we want to talk about in the show from now on. Because uh, we talked about eunuchs for 30 minutes. <laughs> um, but uh, we're, we're kind of continuing on. And kind of branching into continents for the kingdom of heaven a little bit more, but then pivoting to 1 Corinthians 7 with St. Paul and Pope St. John Paul II here. Uh, so just a few things that uh, Pope St. John Paul II says, uh, kind of wrapping up his contemplation, well, in this section, of continents for the uh, sake of the kingdom of heaven. Remember last week, you know, he, the, the, the key verse he's interpreting right now is Matthew 19, which, you know, says basically... 
there are those who are born eunuchs and there are those who have been made eunuchs by men. But then there are those who have chosen to be eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. Implying a few things. Implying, one, that it's voluntary, right? Implying that it's voluntary, that they've chosen continence for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And also implying that their goal is supernatural in scope. It's, it's, it's eschatological in, in, in orientation. It's ordered towards the kingdom of heaven, right? And uh, just in case you weren't here last week, that Jesus was not speaking literally here. He doesn't want literal eunuchs. Like, remember, talking about origin. Don't want to be literal eunuchs. Um, but it's, it's choosing continence or abstinence for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And JP2 kind of ends by reminding his audience, right, these Wednesday audiences, uh, that the foundation of this choice, right, and it's a counsel, right? It's not a commandment. Remember that, too. Um, it, this is something that Jesus offers as helpful to the spiritual life, which we're going to talk to you a little bit with St. Paul, uh, but it's not a commandment, right? He's not commanding us to be uh, continent or abstain for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Obviously, he knows that from the beginning, uh, God made Eve for Adam, right? From, from man for woman, woman for man. And our bodies speak to that uh, union, that natural union, right? Um, but it's a counsel, right? It's something that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God, God uh, knows will help those who have been called and called to understand, like Jesus says, uh, enter the kingdom of heaven and lead others to the kingdom of heaven. Um, but JP2 points out that the ultimate motivator here is love, right? Because the thing about love in this kind of, we have two Greek words today and I couldn't choose between the two. The first Greek word agape, right? Which is love in Greek, which I think a lot of people are familiar with agape. Um, and it, it's, uh, or charity, right? Uh, charitable love, selfless love. Um, the, other, uh, the other word is kalos, which is good. Uh, it, means, it just means good. Um, and so the thing with love, love is always, always, agape love is always oriented towards a person, right? And so we had, we, you've probably heard this before, there's a few different words for love in Greek, uh, even in Spanish and other language too. Uh, English is, I think, the only language to my understanding, my knowledge, that only has like one word for love. Um, that's why I can say, oh, man, I love pizza. And then in the next breath, I can say, I love my wife. Um, and if you're a new English speaker, you might need some clarification. Uh, but if you speak English, like fluently, if you're comfortable with it, you know that I don't, I'm not meaning the same thing when I say I love pizza or I love my wife, but unfortunately we're just hindered by our language and we only have one word for it. Um, but in Greek and Spanish and other languages, they have multiple words for multiple different kinds of love. Um, and so agape, you know, this is a selfless love, willing the good of the other for the sake of the other, as St. Thomas would put it. Uh, there's also eros, there's also philia, uh, there's also storge, all these different Greek words for love. Eros being... Um, it's the, it's the root of the word erotic, but it's more than that. It's not just erotic love. It's not just passion, right? It is that, but it's way more than that. We talked about this, I guess, like a month or so ago. Eros is kind of this underlying driving force, right? That drives man to do something virtuous and difficult um, for the sake of the good or the beloved or just the good in general. Storge is, is, is familial love. It can be translated like that, like the love you have for a brother or a sister or a cousin or a mom or a father. Um, it's more than that as well, but we'll just put it at that. Um, philia is the love you have for a friend. Um, Philadelphia, the city of friends. Um, and, you know, one thing that I think people 
overthink about this is that, you know, and C.S. Lewis kind of is, as much as I love C.S. Lewis, I think he goofed a little bit here. Um, he kind of put these different Greek words into these definitions that I kind of just said um, and said they can only be used for this, this, and this. Well, when you actually get into like ancient Greek, um, there are interchangeabilities between these words, right? So eros and agape can be used semi-interchangeably with, uh, within context um, and storge and philia as well. Um, and so I don't want to pigeonhole these words because there is some fluidity there. Like in any language, languages are fluid, right? But anyway, regardless, JP2 says love is always oriented towards persons, right? Even, even these four different Greek words for love, they're always oriented towards persons, right? Even when you say, I love pizza, you, you mean it in the way as you, you, you have a desire to be one with the pizza, right? As weird as that sounds, what do you do when you eat something? It, be, it becomes your flesh, right? You literally, you, you absorb it and it becomes your body, right? You break it down, it becomes your body. Um, and, and love as desire is always the desire to become one with something in, to, in some way. Even friendship, right? Um, you, you're united by, a, a, Aristotle will call this unifying third factor, Right? Uh, odds are if you're friends with somebody, maybe you enjoy watching football together. Maybe you have the same car, card game or board game or video game or whatever. Maybe you enjoy the same books or the same religion, hopefully, right? Uh, it needs to be some kind of unchanging third that unites you. Um, and so unites you mentally, right, or spiritually in some way. And so when it comes to continents for the sake of the kingdom, right, the kingdom isn't supposed to be less left in some abstract line of thought. The kingdom of God is ultimately a, a person. It's being, being united to the person of Jesus Christ. And you have to ask this question too. You know, what is the kingdom of God? When Jesus, when Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, you know, what does that mean? What's the kingdom mean? What is that, right? And, and, you know, to kind of break this down very quickly, you know, what is the kingdom of God? Well, anywhere the king is present, there is his kingdom, right? That's his domain. That's his territory, so Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, in a certain sense, when Jesus was on earth, he was with the walking kingdom of God. But now the kingdom of God is everywhere that the God's, God is present, right? So after the resurrection, it, we have this eschatological inbreaking of the world to come in our current world now. And so the kingdom of God is at hand in, in everyone who believes and has been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Um, and ultimately, at the end of time, truly fulfilled totally in its eschatological fulfillment. And so, you know, JP2 says, for, for those who choose continents, it's oriented towards a person, namely the person of Jesus Christ, right? We become the, those who have chosen abstinence or uh, continents for the sake of the kingdom have become brides of Christ. And I think for men, this is a little bit weird because it's like, I'm not a bride, Chase. Like, I'm a dude. Um, I'm a man. Um, and, and it's actually, it's kind of cool, actually, when you look at all the ways and all the metaphors to think of Jesus saving us. Because in, in one sense, you know, you are the bride of Christ insofar as you're a member of his mystical body, the church, right? So God saves you, ultimately either way, by becoming family with him, right? Either you marry into the family or through baptism, you become children, right? So ultimately, you're, you're, you're sons in the son, right? You, but you become children of God through the person of Jesus Christ, right? Right? Uh, through becoming co-heirs with Christ, as St. Paul would say, um, by becoming, you know, daughter-in-law, I guess, uh, in, in this analogy, or by becoming children through baptism. And it's actually both and, right? It's, it's not either or, it's both and here. 
Um, and so I don't want you to have to think like, well, which one is it? It's, it's both. It's, it, they're all beautiful metaphors of saying we become one with Jesus Christ and therefore the gates of heaven have been opened up for us. Um, I heard this really cool uh, uh, way of putting this, you know, and it's just a bit of a tangent, but whatever. Um, you know, and people say, you know, how can God send people to hell? Well, the fact of the matter is you were already going there, right? I mean, you, were, you, you don't deserve heaven because we talked about this on the podcast before. Heaven, what is heaven? It's eternal union with the, with the Trinity, this divine nature of God, which you don't have. You have a human nature, not a divine nature. So if God had done nothing, you were already going to hell, right? Like you were, you were going there. You know, after the fall, there is no eternal life on earth. Death was entered into the world. The only option is hell. Through the grace of God, heaven has been opened to us, right? Heaven has been opened to us. Um, and so this confidence for the sake of the kingdom, it's this identification of a spousal character of love. And this is what JP2 says. Uh, it's the only quote I'm sharing for today from, the book, from uh, the book, at least. He says this, In this way, confidence for the kingdom of heaven, the choice of virginity or celibacy for one's whole life, has become in the experience of the disciples and followers of Christ the act of a particular response to the love of the divine bridegroom and therefore acquired the meaning of an act of spousal love, that is, of a spousal gift of self, with the end of answering in a particular way the Redeemer's spousal love, a gift of self understood as a renunciation, but realized above all out of love. So remember this, this hermeneutic of gift, right? Everything is gift, and ultimately man finds himself in and through a sincere gift of self. And so those who have been called to, to continence for the sake of the kingdom have chosen to say no to this very, very, very good thing for the sake of a greater yes, for the sake of a greater gift to God. And this is when JP2 pivots to 1 Corinthians 7. This is a very, I mean, one amazing passage, and I think it's actually a a passage that Catholics can use uh, when speaking in, in the defense of our Catholic traditions to our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Because 1 Corinthians 7 is literally all about marriage, but also inviting everyone else to be single as St. Paul's single. We, we've touched on this a little bit already, but we're going to dive a little bit deeper into 1 Corinthians 7 right now. Um, and so it's a beautiful passage. And so uh, we're going to read not quite the whole chapter, even though I've totally read the whole chapter. But I'm not going to. I might read a lot of it. Anyway, we'll buckle up here. We're going to dive into uh, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. We read this. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, but you, have, but you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Okay, so we're going to stop there real quick. 
Um, so a few things here. You know, the very first verse, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So we have to kind of zoom out real quick, right? We have to remember that all of Paul's letters, but especially Corinthians and, and Romans, uh, not so much Romans, uh, Corinthians first and second, and uh, actually, no, basically all the letters, just Romans is more debatable. Uh, he is addressing and answering specific issues and questions that he has heard. Uh, he does this in Romans as well, but Romans is is more of a general letter of introduction, and it's a general letter into an introduction into Paul's line of thought because he's never met this congregation before in Rome. Um, so he is he's a bit more in depth, longer winded. Um, not necessarily everything in Romans is a direct answer to a question or something he's heard, even though a lot of it is. Uh, but First Corinthians really is. I mean, when you dive into First and Second Corinthians. It's he's heard this, he has seen this, he has uh, heard accounts of this, right? And so here, we have to assume he's been asked a question from maybe a, a newly widowed person or um, somebody who's engaged, um, because in Corinth especially, we have a lot of Gnostic philosophy kind of embedded within the, the, the town and to the people. Um, and we have a lot of uh, this idea that even they may even heard from Paul, because Jesus was not married, Paul was not married, right? Um, and so I'm sure there was a there was a there was a tension there, right? Um, and they might have even heard of this, this saying of Jesus, right? Namely, that is um, the eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And so there's a tension there. Well, what's the best thing to do, right? Well, and Paul is talking about it here. You know, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, right? Um, in the next verse. But because of the temptation of sex to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own as a husband. And so a lot of theologians throughout the ages will, including St. Augustine, I think, um, will interpret this as basically that marriage is the sacramental answer to concupiscence, right? Uh, or marriage is a sacramental cure for concupiscence in the sense that uh, it helps men and women control or orient properly their sexual desires. Um, and there's some truth to that, I think. But at the same time, I, it, the argument falls short when you look at, well, why was there marriage before the fall then? Adam knew his wife Eve, right, before the fall, um, when original sin wasn't in the picture. Um, so while I think the sacrament of marriage, every sacramental grace is there to help us overcome concupiscence and overcome our, our disordered natures, um, I, I think it'd be wrong to pigeonhole marriage into that's its only purpose because it existed before the fall. Uh, but anyway, we have this this di slight dichotomy uh, here in this passage that, well, Paul doesn't really, he says it's better for you not to have sexual relationships. It's, it's better for you to not give into marriage. He's like, but at the same time, you know, if it, if you're overly tempted or if like, this is a struggle for you, it's better for you to be married so you can have sexual relations than to uh, fall into fornication, which is a greater sin. Um, but what St. Paul stresses, or Pope John Paul II stresses, is that St. Paul is not calling marriage a sin, right? This is not a decision to either sin or not sin, right? It's between what is good and what is better. Um, so if we keep reading in this passage, we read this. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. 
But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So he goes on. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Um, so just, I'm going to skip ahead here, but just to touch on that real quick. You know, the church teaching on divorce and remarriage can be really tough for some people. Um, but I think it's helpful to know, just theologically, divorce is impossible. What do I mean by that? Because if you've come together, if the two have become one, and if the marriage vows have been said validly, the covenant has been made. You've become family, right? What the church allows, and it doesn't even allow, it recognizes that some marriages, however, were never valid marriages to begin with. That's what a declaration of nullity is or an annulment, right? The church, the reason it, it doesn't do divorce is because it recognizes that divorces are impossible because you can't become, you can't renounce somebody as a family member. You know, even if you don't talk to your husband or your, your brother anymore, he's still your brother, right? Even if you don't talk to your parents anymore, they're, you're, they're estranged, they're still your parents, right? And it's the same with the valid marriage, right? If you took your oaths and your, your covenant vows with full knowledge on the day of your wedding, and you came together and you consummated the marriage. And if both of you had full consent, full knowledge during your vows, full consent, full knowledge while you came together to consummate your marriage, you are, I mean, you are family. There's nothing the church can do to make you not family, right? But what the church will recognize is that sometimes people go into marriage and when they take their wedding vows, they lie. And if you lie during your wedding vows, knowingly, right, then you were never validly married to begin with, right? So for an example, if you, in your head, you know you're going to use contraception in your marriage. And if you had, you, you, you know you're not going to have kids. You're going to avoid everything you, you can do possible to have kids. Or if you know you're going to cheat on your spouse, like you're probably not going to remain faithful to your spouse, if you know those things, yet you say them with your lips, and you're, so you're lying, then you, you enter the, the church on your wedding day as two single people, and you leave as two single people, right? You're not married. You've lied. And even if you consummate the marriage, you were, you're never fully married, right? Um, and so the church, after like some serious investigation, and if it discovers that you truly were lying, like you, you, you lied during your vows, um, or even if you don't come together and you don't consummate the marriage or um, you constantly use contraception, which is again another vow that you lied to. Um, it, there's going to be grounds for an annulment, right? And obviously if you weren't even married in a church, that'd be grounds for an annulment because you, if, you, if you're a Catholic and you weren't married in the church, it wasn't a valid marriage anyway. Um, and so the church can recognize annulments, but divorce is impossible. You can get legally divorced. But that being said, um, one thing that I know couples that have done this, there are couples who have been validly married and recognize that maybe the, the relationship turns abusive, um, maybe in mentally or physically, whatever it is. And so sometimes I think people, especially women, feel like they can't leave their husband because divorce is impossible in the Catholic Church. That's, that's, no, that's not true. If you're in danger, you should 
jet. You should leave. You should get out of Dodge. Um, and so you can leave your spouse, but it doesn't mean you can get divorced and remarried in the church necessarily, right? Um, so especially if somebody's in danger, they should get out of that dangerous situation. Um, now, unfortunately, if the marriage is valid, and um, then divorce is still impossible, and you know that's a that's a that's a that's an incredible cross that I, I can't even begin to fathom to understand. Um, but that's it's still the case where you you can even Paul says here you can you can be estranged from your spouse, but you either need to reconcile with them or remain unmarried. Right? That's actually this is the, where the church gets that teaching from, part of the teaching from, right? Um, and so finally, we get to this this last section that we're going to talk about. St. Paul, starting in verse 25, says this. Now concerning the betrothed, so those who are engaged or legally married but not haven't come together yet, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will be, have worldly troubles, and I would spare you of that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they have none, and those who mourn as those that they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as those they, they have no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they have no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Skipping down a little bit. But whoever is firmly established in his heart under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his brother does well and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Sorry. So he who marries his betrothed does well. And he who refrains in marriage will do even better. So this is not necessarily a proof text for continence for the kingdom of heaven, but it it shows us that this was very early Christian thought, as early as St. Paul. It's about as early as it gets. Um, namely, what is he talking about? He's saying that those who married marry do well. It's good, good, get married. That's awesome, great. But those who don't marry do better. And he's talking spiritually right? Why? Because he wants them to be free of anxieties. He doesn't want us, them to be distracted. And why, And part of this reason from a kind of a historical critical perspective, uh, in a no, historical critical perspective, uh, from a literary perspective, if you go back here, St. Paul thinks the world's about to end. Remember early Christian church, they really thought Christ was going to come back like ASAP. So for St. Paul, marriage was kind of pointless. We should just, we should know like, you should just live and focusing on the person of Jesus Christ because he's coming again soon. There's no point, like, focus on Jesus Christ. Um, but ultimately, as the church developed, obviously, and, and we knew that Jesus, like, we have no idea when Jesus is coming back, there's this understanding that, the, and it's true, those who are married, their interests are divided. And this is the part we skipped in verse uh, 32 to 35. But their interests are divided. Right, I, I know this is a married man. Um, before I was married, before I started dating my, my wife, it was super easy for me to have a holy hour every day, to, to go to mass every day, to 
pray my rosary every day, to do all these spiritual and, and physical disciplines that are oriented totally towards the Lord, to study theology and philosophy as much as I wanted, to serve, to do ministry and all these things. My life was totally oriented towards the person of Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying now I'm like a terrible sinner who never goes to mass or anything like that. But once you have a wife and kids, your, your interest and attention by necessity are divided. And it's not a bad thing, y'all. That's what St. Paul's saying. It's still a good, it's a great good, actually. Um, but with this eschatological bent that St. Paul has, he's saying those who are single and can, can devote all their time to Christ, spiritually, it's just you're, you're focused on God. You are living the eschatological future now. The inbreaking of the world to come is happening in their person now because they're totally fixed on Christ um, and they don't have those necessary distractions of marriage. So I don't, I hope this isn't like a, it's not supposed to be a discouragement to those of us who are married. I don't read it as this. I am married, y'all. Um, I'm not here saying don't get married if you're listening to this and you're discerning your marriage, uh, discerning your vocation. That's not it at all. It, it's just saying that for those who have been called, right? That's what, that's what Jesus says. So those who have been called to understand this, it's a beautiful way of life. And it's the quote unquote more perfect spiritual way of life because you're living heaven, the reality now on earth. That being said, it's not a choice between sin and, you know, virtue. It's not it at all. It's it's just two different callings in life, right? So a lot more can and really should be said about all of this. Um, we will maybe touch on it a little bit more next week, but we really, we're really trying to move on in our Theology of the Body course. So thank you, thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode of Catholics with Bibles. Until next time, y'all, God bless. Wow, we are definitely out of time. Um, so sorry I couldn't talk about everything I want to talk about today, but we talked about a lot and that's a really good thing. So as always, if you have not, please subscribe to our podcast on by you know, our uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever it is. Um, go to our YouTube channel if you want to subscribe that way so you can watch it instead of just listening to it. It's St. Teresa Catholic Church and School. Um, you'll find it. You'll find Catholics with Bibles and all our other content on our YouTube channel as well. So like, subscribe, leave a review, share with your family and friends. Thank you so much on joining us with Catholics with Bibles.